Views and opinions expressed on this program are those solely of its speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of WMUA, its management board, or the board of trustees of the University of Massachusetts. During the more than a year that we've all been living with, despite, or alongside the COVID-19 pandemic, it's taken a toll on our health, our work, and our relationships. We've adjusted to a new normal, even if it never really felt all that normal. And now that vaccines are within our reach, it's so tempting to think about what our lives will look like in summer 2021 and beyond, when this pandemic is in hindsight, or at least no longer eclipsing the view. My name is Kelsey Whipple, and I'm an assistant professor in the UMass Journalism Department. This semester, the students in my Introduction to Reporting for Radio and Podcasting class spent a month reporting and producing stories about how the coronavirus has shaped their lives and their world. The stories they created share insights into what it's like to finally schedule a vaccine appointment, to learn a new language or anything at all these days, to try to date, to get addicted to Animal Crossing, and many more samples of life during COVID-19. I hope you'll enjoy the glimpses of life during the pandemic that they reported. And if you haven't had a chance to catch the first part of the series during the fall, listen to our previous stories for WMUA News on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast platform. For WMUA News, I'm Bonnie Chen, and you're tuning into the first installment of the Pandemic Series 2.0. First up, we have stories on a couple's journey to secure a coronavirus vaccine appointment and the business of language learning during a global pandemic. Stick with us. It was well after midnight, but Paul Reynolds and his wife were determined to secure a vaccination appointment. But not for either of them. They sought shots for Reynolds' then 95-year-old mother. No matter what I did, refreshing, trying different browsers, trying different computers, it still would tease me with a notification, there's one appointment now open, then the next page, nothing open. Then I try it again, there are three appointments now open. You go to the next page and look at the list, there's nothing open. Massachusetts has now vaccinated 29% of residents with at least one shot, a rate exceeded by only six other states, according to the New York Times vaccine tracker. But the early days of the vaccine distribution didn't fare so well. At a time when Massachusetts' most vulnerable older residents were getting their shots, the state's registration website was difficult to use. For the elderly, many of whom struggle with technology, this was a barrier to ending their isolated year of COVID. When my mother came to visit us for a couple of months at the beginning of last year, it was ostensibly just a short stay, and she has been here ever since. Nearly a full year after she arrived at the family's Dedham home, Reynolds' mother could receive a COVID-19 vaccine as part of the 75 and older demographic. Since then, we've made progress, and now everyone in phase phase one is eligible to be vaccinated. That includes- yeah, it was the first moment of happiness. Yay, she qualifies. But Reynolds' happiness quickly turned to confusion. He describes himself as tech-savvy, and he runs a Boston-based software company, so has plenty of computer experience. But I have to say, 
I was definitely uh, you know put put through the paces on this one. To secure the first vaccination appointment for his mother, Reynolds had to input all her information, from her birthday and other personal details to her insurance carrier. Then he clicked through the page to find an appointment slot. But when he selected a particular day, there were no appointments. He'd then have to return to the beginning, re-entering all the information again and again. One night, Reynolds decided he'd stay on the website until he had a slot booked. He must have picked the right night. There were appointments from the top of the screen scrolling all the way to the bottom of the screen. So I grabbed one in the afternoon. But I, I happened to pick a date of a major snowstorm. Reynolds tried to reschedule the appointment, but evidently many other people in the state had a similar idea. You know, it was like being in Las Vegas. I just kept refreshing and refreshing and refreshing. You just keep pulling the lever to see if you get an appointment. As hard as it was for Reynolds to secure an appointment, he says it would have been much more difficult if his mother did it alone. The idea that an elderly person like my mother would have to navigate a computer, it's just, it's its impossible to imagine. I, I think it is extremely hard for, it would be extremely hard for a senior who doesn't have computer skills to try and navigate the system. It was hard for me. Linda Sherman, of Chestnut Hill, also struggled getting her appointment. Despite being eligible at age 75, the registration website wouldn't let her sign up. I got online, answered all the questions. When I got to which priority group I was in, it was not listed. Yet I was eligible, according to the CDC, so I kept trying and trying and trying. Sherman knew she should have been able to get an appointment, but the registration website apparently did not. But since I was eligible, I was persistent, and I kept, you know, doing the same thing, really over, essentially over and over, knowing I was eligible and trying to get in. Sherman tried to work around the website. She listed herself as a frontline worker on the first page. On the subsequent page, under employer, she listed 75 years of age. Then it allowed me to continue to register under the phase in which I was eligible. But Sherman still experienced many of the problems Reynolds described, even when she realized a way around the website. I would put in all my information, insurance and secondary insurance and address and name all the pertinent information, and then you would get to the site and it would say no available appointments. You had to put in the information over and over again and then reach a point where it would tell me that there were no available time slots. Despite the early struggles, Massachusetts' vaccination program recovered. According to state data, more than three-quarters of residents older than 75 have received at least one dose of the vaccine. This allows some of the state's most vulnerable populations to enjoy some semblance of normalcy as the pandemic continues. For WMUA News, I'm Will Catcher. My grandfather spent the 1980s building a two-bedroom in-law unit behind his and my grandmother's house in Brazil. Four decades and two generations later, I spent a sweltering South American summer with them, living in that house and wondering why it brimmed with subtle linguistic reminders of home. For example, kitchen appliances made by and for Portuguese-speaking Brazilians that often feature manufacturing labels written exclusively in English. Or my cousin Ben-Hur, who, as a nine-year-old, named his yellow lab Marley. 
My name is Benhu Araújo Batista da Silva. I am Brazilian from Governador Valadares. How long have you been studying English? I've been studying English since my 10, 11 years old. And how old are you now? I am 17 now. I wanted to find out why Brazilians feel drawn to the English language and seem so keen on learning it. But not just why. Why now, in the middle of a pandemic? Where does the business of language learning stand while COVID-19 brings the rest of the world to its knees? I like to study English too because I think it's very important to me to get a job or to be introduced in the work market. Batista has pragmatic goals, but he says English language learning programs often fall short of students' most modest expectations, especially ones taught in public schools. Private language schools tend to crop up in every big city. Some even expand into international franchises like Fisk or Wizard. Private funding equips these schools to properly teach students, and as it so happens, private funding also equips them to survive a pandemic. This is Jean Pereira, the founder and head teacher at Way Idiomas, a private language learning academy in the southeastern state of Minas Gerais, a school that managed to stay afloat while surrounded by storefronts closing for good. I've tried going back to in-person classes in February, but now we can't anymore. But uh, I've tried to find other ways to keep up with the, you know, to, to keep bringing money to the business. Pereira says her losses forced her to think creatively. Her program now enrolls students living abroad or in other states in its online classes. But at the onset of the pandemic, Pereira furloughed two teachers and a receptionist, forcing her to take on new responsibilities. So I kind of worked by myself throughout the year, being the receptionist and the teacher and the coordinator. Despite the initial impact of lockdowns, her business still stands. The pandemic never forced Pereira to surrender the lease on her business, even after a year of empty classrooms. Public schools don't have the same capacity or resources to ease families and administrators into big transitions. I turned to a former language teacher for more insight on the long-standing inequities in Brazilian education. Hi, I'm Iraquia Pereira. I'm a former English teacher from Brazil. And who are you to me? I'm your mom. (laughs) My mom began teaching English in 1984 at a small rural private school in the Brazilian countryside. I started teaching when I was 19, at your age. When you were born, I was teaching at two schools, at Duque de Caxias, a public high school, and at Univalli, a private university. My mom says the schism between the quality of the education at Brazilian public and private institutions disadvantages teachers, parents, and students. During her days teaching English at a public school, she endured long hours and taught in overcrowded classrooms. Wow, it was a long time ago. (laughs) At that time, uh, I used to wake up very, very early, but you have huge classes with about 50, 53 students in class, and you need to teach several classes. The teachers work a lot, uh, but there is not enough compensation for them. If a teacher wants to earn a good salary, they work at a private school, 
or more recently, a startup like Duolingo, which registered peaks in new user downloads of its language learning app with each country's pandemic lockdown. As it turns out, the surge in new downloads reflects the democratization of a commodity so unattainable in Brazil, a good language education. Ultimately, the coronavirus took a match to the inequalities festering in the Amazonian underbelly, and it lit a flame. For WMUA News, I'm Rebecca Pereira. Stick with us to hear about the UMass graduate student experience amidst a global pandemic and how UMass Transit employees are operating under COVID-19 guidelines. Graduate students at the University of Massachusetts Amherst saw substantial changes to their education over the past year. The COVID-19 pandemic forced the university to transition all non-lab classes to remote instruction. Those who remained in the Amherst area were subject to strict quarantine guidelines by the university. For the grad students I spoke to, these changes reshaped their studies and social lives in very unique ways. Cameron Ringdahl studies business and analytics as part of UMass's one-year master's program. With plans to graduate this summer, he may never get to experience grad school in person. He doesn't know if his online courses are suitable substitutes for regular in-person learning. I'm not exactly sure what grad school is supposed to be since I've never done it before. <laughs> so it feels like too much work and also too easy at the same time. Ringdahl says remote learning lacks the human element necessary for him to work collaboratively with others. Almost all of his classes include group projects. Ringdahl usually struggles to rally his groups together. Getting people together online is way harder than getting them together in person. You can't like lay pressure on them to be like, hey, we need to get this done. Ringdahl values meaningful discussion of the course material he learns, but he says online classes diminish the quality of this discussion. He frequently finds his talking points lost in the void of a Zoom call. I really like discussion blocks in, in person, where you could meet with the same group of students, but now it's all just done in breakout rooms that are assigned randomly in class. And I don't, nobody talks. Nobody ever talks. I'm always the one that has to break, break the silence. More than anything, Ringdahl feels robbed of the social connections he hoped to make while attending grad school. He was looking to make new friends and study buddies to help him navigate his mountain of work. But now, Ringdahl feels restricted by the limitations of online interaction. It feels very distant from your classmates now. Like there's not even, oh man, even like in person, just idle talking to the person next to you in class before it starts or something, like discussing something with them if the professor said something that you think is strange or that you didn't understand. And that just doesn't happen because you can't turn to a person next to you, you'd be unmuting yourself and talking to the entire class. <laughs> Arun Duna sees the disconnect caused by remote learning from a slightly different perspective. 
Duna earned his master's in computer science last fall semester. For two semesters, Duna engaged in remote learning both as a student and as an instructor. He now knows what it's like to teach in person and online. Duna says remote instruction carries a much heavier burden for the professor. He says the time it takes to record online lectures demonstrates all the extra work involved. Previously, you just go to class, give your lecture, and then you were done, right? Now you have to do the same thing. Oftentimes you have multiple takes because you did something improperly or equipment malfunctioned or something, and then you have to edit the thing, and then you have to upload the thing to whatever relevant software. All those things make it just so much longer. Duna feels far more detached from his students when he's behind a screen. He doesn't have an effective means of reaching out and helping those who struggle with course material. Video chats and emails just don't cut it. He worries this negatively affects his students' performances. People are a lot more disconnected from classes because they're all remote and you can't do anything about it. And so for that reason, you'll have people who um, won't show up to classes and they won't watch the recorded lectures because they're not motivated. And then they'll just come to office hours or they'll email you with like questions like, why did I fail this course when I didn't do anything? Duna hopes recent progress with COVID-19 vaccinations means students can return in the fall for in-person classes. He says returning to a normal college structure will suit everyone better in the future. For WMUA News, I'm Barry Giglio. The COVID-19 pandemic sent millions of workers home for the past year, but for UMass Transit, service can't stop. I started as a bus driver for UMass Transit in October of 2020, and I am separated from my passengers by a clear plastic shield. It feels like a metaphor for the entire pandemic. UMass Transit's COVID-19 measures were created in March of 2020, when COVID-19 sent students home. UMass Transit's COVID-19 procedures include disinfecting buses between shifts, installing spit guards to protect drivers, and creating backup driver shifts to keep the buses from hitting capacity. This helps with social distancing. Drivers enforce federal mask policies as well. Enforcing a federal mask policy is difficult. Passengers are sometimes upset at new regulations. This leads to some passengers refusing to comply. UMass Transit student bus driver Andrew Sood started in early November of 2020. Sood says that drivers can grow weary of enforcing federal mask policies, specifically one that prohibits gaiters and bandanas as a face covering on public transportation. Guys with the bandana masks, which we're not supposed to allow, but after about a week of trying to enforce it and give people normal masks to give, I just got tired of being the mask police. It was exhausting, it was delaying me and everyone else, and I just didn't feel like it anymore. It was too much. UMass Transit bus driver Adam Buckley is a UMass journalism alum and drove with UMass for multiple years before March of 2020. He feels similarly to suit about policing mask wearing and shares a concern for the safety of drivers. In, in my honest experience, I try to be like subtle and respectful about it where, you know, I don't want to embarrass anybody. I don't want to call anybody out. One, because I wouldn't want to be that too if it was an honest mistake. And two, you do hear stories of people getting like stabbed and shot and beaten up over putting a piece of cloth on their face in the pandemic. UMass Transit figured out how to change its services to fit a new world when the university sent students home in March of 2020. Buckley says UMass handled these changes well, but there was a lot of uncertainty in the beginning. 
it was originally kind of scary with service being cut, I think by like 30%, I'm just spitballing, but um, shifts did get cut back because obviously less riders because a lot of people went home. Buckley briefly quit UMass Transit in March of 2021 to become a maintenance worker for a local apartment complex, but he came back to UMass Transit quickly after this transition. His reason for returning included UMass Transit's treatment of employees during the pandemic. I felt safer and more protected at transit. Um, the staff like uh, Glenn and Pyres have really been on top of it, have really been on the side of the drivers and protecting us and I think having our best interests at heart. It was like 50-50, honestly, as far as why I came back, but um, how much of a factor, I don't know, but it certainly was a factor of coming back to transit. Um, UMass Transit employees who come in contact with the public are given hazard pay. Hazard pay also is, is a big thing too because it's kind of acknowledging that you're putting yourself at risk a little bit dealing with the public. Um, and I think that's important to, to have. Passengers who are purposefully antagonistic are an annoyance for drivers, even though in my experience the vast majority of passengers pose no issue at all. Public transportation is no place to make a political statement. Try, I'm trying to be like respectful and like adult about it, but if you go around wearing a hat that says your vaccine and you take public trans transit, just like, it's the kind of thing, it's like open carrying in a Walmart. It's like, okay, cool. You don't, there's no need to be antagonistic about it. Just get on, get off, you know? UMass Transit employees are now eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine under the new phase of the Massachusetts vaccine rollout. Sood hopes this will lead to improved peace of mind for him and his fellow drivers. You know, they're not as at risk anymore with the antibodies running around inside of them. Driver's peace of mind. But other than that, the day-to-day -day is not going to change until we're out of this. UMass Transit passengers from the towns of Amherst, Belchertown, Deerfield, Granby, Hadley, Northampton, South Hadley, and Sunderland arrive at their destinations thanks to the drivers and UMass Transit employees who risk their health to get them there safely. For WMUA News, I'm Sophia Torres.